for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. Sit down. <laughs> now, y'all down the back. We got plenty of seats sitting down here. If you want, you can even sit where I'm sitting right there. There's, uh, I've got a couple of chairs over there. You don't. Have, what I'm saying is, you don't have to stand all the time. Just like I'm happy if you want to, just because I'm standing. <laughs> Actually, should, I should just preach and make all of you stand. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, Pastor Matty uh, is not here, obviously, as, as uh, Pastor Zach said. And uh, so I'm on. But we're still going to talk about marriage. I'm going to start somewhere that you might not have expected me to. I am going to come to the famous passage that uh, Pastor Matty has been opening up from the end of Ephesians chapter 5. But I'm going to go back to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 and I'm going to start in there because you're going to see something very, very interesting about to unfold. So Ephesians 5 verse 1 up on the screen, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And where he goes from there, so as Paul is writing, he's going to unfold what it means to be an imitator of God as dear children. Now, one of my favourite photos, and I think I've lost it, uh, was uh, back in the day when my kids were little. They're really big now. In fact, you've seen Phil, who's towers above me. But there was a time when he was actually only about this big. And he had one of those red and yellow plastic lawn mowers. And uh, in Australia, we don't ride mowers. Uh, we, have di- we have normal size grass, you know, just... So we have little push mowers like this, you know. And so I would push the mower and Phil would come behind me with his little clackety plastic thing and he would be mowing just like Dad. And uh, I can't tell you how many times people would just slow down in front of the house just to watch because it would have looked really cute. It was a, a proud dad moment. As dearly loved children, be imitators of God. So... What does it mean to imitate him? What does it mean to actually see what he's doing and then try and unfold that? And so for the rest of chapter 5, it starts to open up what that might mean. And then it jumps into three pictures of everyday life of how it is that we can imitate God. And so one of them is found, we're not going to look just yet, but if you've got a Bible, you'll be able to see it from from verse 22 through to verse 33, that's through to the end of the chapter, so chapter 5, 22 through to 33, is the picture of wives and husbands. What he's going to show us is how to imitate God in that relationship. Then straight from there, because you know that when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he did not have chapter headings, he didn't have verse headings. So straight after Wives and husbands, he jumps straight into chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and that's children and fathers. And we're going to see why he leaves mothers out, because it's going to be very important. 
And so he talks about children and fathers. He's looking at that relationship. And then he goes from chapter 6, verses 5 through to 9, he looks at servants and masters, and he's going to unfold that one. And that's because in society there are three different sorts of relationships. Well, of course, there's multiple relationships that we have, but three that are going to be particularly uh, like pictures of what it means to follow God and to be an imitator of him. And one of them is going to be marriage. One of them is going to be parenting. And the other is going to be in the workplace. And so in each of those different environments that we might find ourselves in, what does it mean? How do we go about actually being like my little five-year-old, four-year-old, pushing his little red and yellow I'm colourblind, so I'm assuming it was red and yellow. It might have been red and green or brown and green. But, but as he's pushing it behind, like how do we do that for those of us who are married, for those of us who aren't married? How do we do that for those of us who are children? Well, we're all children, but some of us are so old uh, that we don't see ourselves as children anymore. And for some of us here in this room, our parents actually are no longer here with us. And so it's difficult for us to consider ourselves that way. But, so, but some of us here are parents. How does that look like? What's, what's the relationship look like for those of, who, of us who are in the workforce? Um, so, well, some of us are, are in a sole person business. Well, that one's going to look a bit different. But where there's at least two people in the business and one is the boss, what does that relationship look like? And what does it mean to imitate God in it? I want to read Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to come to the one on marriage because that's uh, the, uh, the theme that Pastor Maddie is opening up to us. So let me just read from verse 22 onwards. We heard this read out yesterday by Pastor David at a wedding. Like, how good was Pastor Dave? Like, first ever wedding, come on. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, so as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as, uh, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be there to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of, of you in particular so love his, his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Go back to verse 32 there, thanks, Alan. Just the previous verse. This is a great mystery, 
but, I'm, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I really just want to open that up uh, a little deeper just so that we can see where that's actually going to go. And Pastor Maddie's already started to unfold this message to us. It's really interesting because as you heard me reading that out, there was a lot about Christ and the church in it, but really he addressed it to wives and husbands, didn't he? And so he's talking about marriage. And yet here at the very end of that, of that discussion, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You would have thought, no, you were speaking about husbands and wives and you illustrated that by talking about Christ and the church. And he's saying, no, you've misunderstood me. It's a great mystery. It's the other way around. Now, I don't know if you realise this, but in the language of the New Testament, the word mystery is a little bit different to how we use it in English. In English, a mystery is something like, you know, Miss Marple or you know, Agatha Christie, you know, Hercule Poirot. And it's, I'm married to a, a woman who loves whodunits. Um, and so just a whodunit. A whodunit is... Do you say that in, in America? Okay, you're really young, so I'll explain it to you. A whodunit is whodunit. Like there was a murder and whodunit. Who done the murder? Who done did it? So old people call them whodunits. It's sort of like a murder mystery. Just a mystery in our language means that if you pay attention closely enough, you'll be able to work it out. Okay, that's not the New Testament word mystery. The word, New Testament word mystery is that you're never going to work this out because not all the information is given to you. There are secrets in there and we're not telling you what the secret is. So you're never going to see it. Marriage, there's a secret in marriage and you're never going to see it unless God shows it to you and he starts off by saying this is a great mystery he's talking about husbands and wives actually he's talking about wives and husbands he's talking about wives and husbands and he says this is a great mystery now I'm going to show you where the mystery is I'm going to tell you the secret but I'm speaking about Christ and the church not talking about husbands and wives, talking about Christ and the church. That's what he was doing when he talked about children and fathers. He's talking about God the Father and his children. It's what he's talking about when he talks about masters and servants. He's talking about the lordship of Yahweh and the servanthood of his people. It's actually about him. And that's why I started off this morning by talking about that verse from Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, as dearly loved children, be imitators of God. He's going to show us how to imitate. Okay, so I've been thinking about how to give an illustration as to how this might uh, fit together. Those of you who have been with us for a good couple of years, you remember when we first moved into this building... Uh, Pastor Maddie was preaching a, a series on, um, on Noah. 
and the flood. And one of the things that he talked about was, now I've never done the research to find out if this is true or not, but it kind of looks true once you see it. But he, he made the point that go back many hundreds of years ago when architects, Christian architects, were designing buildings like this. They were designing uh, cathedrals and, 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 and church structures that they wanted to have something that reflected Noah's Ark because, you know, if you know the New Testament, then the Ark is kind of like a picture in the Old Testament of how we jump into Jesus and, and get saved from the flood of God's wrath and all of that kind of uh, everything. But, and so he just said, so you look up there and you'll see that this looks like it's the inside of a ship. So have a look at it and I'll, I'll show you how to see it. See, we're actually upside down and we're looking up, so we're actually looking down into the belly of the ship and uh, there's the big stays that, uh, that are binding the ship together and probably you'd have where those projections are coming out, you'd have a floor there because down there that's in the belly of the ship and then there's probably another floor here and then the mast and everything's going to be down there. Can you see it? Okay. Are those, is this really a ship? No, it's a building, isn't it? But I just showed you how to see the picture, okay? Now, there are other things that are true in this room that are not true of a ship. Ships in general are not built with bricks. <laughs> ships don't have a great big round window Ships don't have holes in the glass that are underwater. Okay. Like these are, they don't have little tiny thin glass like that anyway. There's, there's, there are many things that are true about this that are not true of a ship. Is that fair? Okay, that's what the Bible calls a type or an image. Um, it's, uh, the, the whole Bible is full of these pictures. God loves pictures because not everybody's going to read. So he shows pictures. In the Old Testament, the, there are pictures everywhere of Christ who is to come. There was the sacrificial ceremonies. There was the lamb that's slain, uh, morning and evening and, and more on, on Saturday. And like, you know, there was the, the, the Passover and the, the great festivals. They're all pictures of Christ. There was, uh, there was the priesthood and and uh, the kingdom, they were, all, they were all pictures of Christ. There was a promised land. It's, a, it's, all, it's all pictures of things that God is speaking into the future. And if we study them and look at them really closely, we will start to see so much of how much God talks to us all the time. Even in history, in the history of our world, God is talking to us. He paints pictures. He is so in control, so incredibly genius that he can paint pictures not just in his instructions, but he can paint pictures with people. So you look at David and Goliath and what an incredible picture of Christ taking down the enemy of our humanity. What, what an incredible picture of the victory won. What about when the snakes 
uh, in the wilderness were, were biting all of the Israelites and they were dying. And, and God told Moses, I want you to get a serpent, make, a, make it out of bronze, which is all about judgment, put that bronze serpent up on a cross. And if anyone looks at it, then he'll be healed. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing picture of Christ. Uh, how about this one? When God was instructing Moses because the children of Israel uh, didn't have any water to drink and he said, strike the rock and water will flow out of it. So he strikes the rock and next minute there's a great river coming out and all the people drink. And then some years later, they find themselves in a similar situation where they don't have water. And so God says to Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out. And Moses gets his rod and he, in front of the people, he hits that rock, did what he did the first time, hits the rock and water comes out. And if you know the story well, God has a little heart to heart with him over that. Moses does not go into the promised land because he missed that one little tiny instruction. Are you kidding me? That one little instruction keeps him out of the promised land. Oh yeah, well, he was a leader. Well, I understand that, but one little instruction. Think about it. There's a whole generation go into the promised land. I understand that their dads all died in the wilderness, but there were young people 19 years of age at the time when Israel was commanded to go into the promised land and they didn't, at 19 years of age, 40 years later in the wilderness, they're now 59 years of age. You can't tell me that each one of them are so perfect and pure that they go into the promised land because of their goodness. In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll discover that in fact, it's the quite opposite. It's all about grace. So how is it that Moses misses going into the promised land because of one failed instruction? And it's because there was a picture there and he ruined the picture. And as soon as you ruin the picture, then you won't see it. See, because if I took you into the building that Christine and I had in our church in Sydney, it looked like a warehouse. There was nothing about that thing that looked like a ship. Nothing. And if it was supposed to look like a ship, we destroyed it by changing the architecture. And so God wants to keep his pictures in place. And when those pictures get ruined, you will see he judges very harshly so that we can say, why did that happen? Like, why did God not let Moses in? Well, because there was a picture there that if you strike Christ on the cross, water flows out of him. But once he's been struck, he never needs to be struck again. All you need to do is speak and the waters flow. And so the picture was about to be ruined by Moses and God's by his harsh judgment, he makes us all consider what was the picture supposed to look like? Marriage is one of them. Marriage is something that's a picture that God has placed within our society and it's really important. Okay. 
People in general don't understand it though. I remember in, in Australia, uh, just not that long ago, we had our, our, our big debates around the country um, about e equal rights in marriage. And uh, you had them over here too, you know, just like your debates about same-sex marriage. And uh, in our country, we ended up having a, what we call a plebiscite. And so it was just like, we just asked the people, what do we want to do? And, uh, and, you know, just, it just became a national debate. Christians in general did not know how to argue their case. They went and pulled out Bible verses. I know the same happened over here because I watch all social media and I know that that's what happened over here. So I know that Christians in general over here don't understand either uh, about the basis for marriage. It starts with a picture that describes Christ and the church. So if that's the picture and it's not about... Uh, do you want to go to verse 22? Just flipping through there, get back there. That's it. No, 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 verse 32, sorry. There's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Don't worry, I'm going somewhere with all of this. It's going to be really... I think it's going to be profound, but... <laughs> so if he's talking about Christ and the church, what does it look like, Christ and the church? Because whatever Christ and the church looks like, that's what marriage is supposed to be, okay? It's a picture. And so we're going to look at a theology of marriage, not a Bible verse of marriage. So I'm not going to pull out a Bible verse and say, oh, well, the Bible says this, there, so that's why we believe this. Now I'm going to look at actually why marriage exists in the first place. In the entire animal kingdom, marriage is not common. It's not. So why is it essential for humans? What makes us different? And it comes down to that one thing that Pastor Matty brought out the other day, that we're created in the image of God. There's an image here that we need to see. So what does the relationship between Christ and the church look like in this relationship? Well, firstly, it's covenantal. It's a covenant. It's a contract. That's why, as Christians, that's why the Bible talks about that you don't try before you buy. You don't sleep around before you get married. If you do that, then you're breaking the picture. You're ruining the picture because the picture is about Christ and the church. Jesus didn't sleep around before he married us. Okay, he makes us brand new so that therefore we come to him as virgins. Okay, so it's not that we sleep around with all these gods and then come to Christ afterwards. No, that's not how it worked. We slept around with all these other gods and some of us here in this room actually did sleep around with other gods and Jesus killed us on the cross and made us brand new, born again, a whole new story, erased the past, made us completely clean, washed us completely clean of all of that uh, awfulness of the past 
and now committed himself to covenant with him. And when you said yes to Jesus, you might not realise it, but you just came into a covenant relationship. You said yes to him. It was really funny yesterday at the wedding, uh, Chris, who, who uh, married Emily's mum, Sheila, he comes up to me and he, he said before the wedding, he said, he said, do you have any words of advice for me? And I said, I only have one word of advice for you today. Today, your job is to say yes, and I do. That's your job. <laughs> he said, okay, I can do that. <laughs> Romans 5.8, up there on the screen. God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the basis of his covenant. He doesn't try us out first to see if we're going to say yes to him. He's, he's not going to sleep with us. That's why, so this is why we hold ourselves pure before marriage. Because there's a picture. I might, you might love that girl with all your heart and hormones are racing through your body. But this is a picture. It's a picture that you don't have the choice to change. Just like Moses didn't have the choice to change when it came to getting water out of the rock. This is something that God holds very dear to himself. It's covenantal and it's lifelong. Did you know that Jesus is committed to you for the long haul? Philippians 1.6, we so often quote this verse uh, as referring to ourselves up on the screen, thanks. That was a click. You just, oh, almost. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, We so often quote that as to ourselves, but in the original language, the word you there on that second, second last word on the second line is a plural you. He who began a good work... I, so let me put it in Southern talk. I almost want to do the whole verse in... Come on, I'll have a go with that. <laughs> Being confident of this very thing <laughs> that he has begun a good work, work, work. How do you say work? <laughs> work. Work in all y'all. <laughs> we'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's the verse. In you, he's talking about his bride. He who began a good work in his bride, in you, will complete it. This means his covenant is lifelong. He is, he's committed to lasting the distance with you. No matter how hard that journey is, no matter how rocky that is, he is committed to it. This is why we don't give up easily on marriage. We don't. One of my favourite quotes, the only quote I have from Dr. Phil. 
is you have to earn your divorce. You've got to work really, really hard, really hard. Some people go through 20 years of just getting it wrong and then say, that's it, I'm done, let's get a divorce. They have not even begun to try and make this thing right. So just because it's taken a long time doesn't mean that you've worked for this. Doesn't mean that you've done everything to restore this relationship. Understand that sometimes it actually goes that path and maybe that's something that Pastor Matty will pick up later on. But I want to just underscore this for you right now. If you are married right now, irrespective of this is not your first uh, marriage or what, then I want you to make a commitment right now to get the picture right. There is no plan B. There is no way out. Jesus is committed to his bride forever, no matter what she does. We need to be reflecting that. It's covenantal, it's lifelong, it's publicly celebrated. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11 says this. Uh, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the, uh, the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just go back to verse 10 there. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. This is something that God showcases. Ephesians 2.10, it's not up on the screen. It says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has beforehand prepared for us. So we're his display. He puts us on display. It's a publicly celebrated relationship. Read the book of Revelation and it closed with this beautiful picture of the church. It's actually not talking about times to come but he has this beautiful picture of the church in chapter 21 and 22 as the bride of Christ. So it's publicly celebrated. That means it's not living together. It's not de facto. And so the relationship between a man and a woman is supposed to look like the relationship between Christ and the church. And that relationship is not one that he quietly engages in and just sneaks in, goes to a little public registry or something like this. This is something that he proudly and publicly does in front of the entire spiritual world. He marries us. So that's what we believe about marriage. It's covenantal, it's lifelong, it's publicly celebrated. It's monogamous. Jesus doesn't have multiple wives. It's not like Jesus is married to the church and the Republican Party. <laughs> it's not like the church has multiple husbands. It's like we have our Jesus and we have our ideologies or our philosophies. It's monogamous. Jesus has one bride. Just on that one, 
that's an important thing for us to hear, that he has one bride. He has one church. And I don't know what you think of the people just down the road or the people over the, over the road there who are in their different churches, but I'll tell you this, Jesus has one bride. Better be careful how you talk about his bride. Okay? Because uh, I'm telling you right now, I'm married to a sweetheart, but if you've if you got words to say about her, then you're going to deal with me. And I'm sorry, I know that I'm not packing a gun, but Aussies find ways of not needing that. We come from the land with poisonous snakes and funnel web spiders. There's a lot of things we can do. But it's monogamous. This is why you'll notice in the Old Testament, God so often talked about the Israelites like they were playing the harlot. It's like he, he likened them to prostitutes because they were going after other husbands. And so he's just like, I've got this covenant worked out here. You're my wife. You're playing around over there. You think that you're married. No, you're not. Okay, so it's covenantal. It's lifelong. It's publicly celebrated. It's monogamous. It's heterosexual. And that's not because the Bible says. It's because we don't understand in, in the West because for the most part, we're just English speakers. So we don't understand gender in general in the English language because gender in the English language basically only works for sex. Male, female or neuter. I remember when I started learning Italian because I've, I've mixed with a whole bunch of Italians and if I was going to communicate with anybody, I had to learn Italian. So, you know, I just thought it was really funny that uh, the table was il tavolo, um, which is masculine, and the chair is la sedia, which is feminine. Because in my ear, it sounds like I'm saying the table is male and the chair is female. That's not what gender is. So for those of you who come from a gender-rich language, and so uh, all of you South Americans uh, and whoever else might be here if you come from Europe. In fact, if you come from just about any language other than English, then you will know that gender is not about male and female. It's about masculine and feminine. And English speakers, we just think, you just said the same thing. Masculine is male. No, it's not. Feminine is female. No, it's not. Masculine and feminine talk about complementarian relationship. It means what goes with a table? A chair. The two go together. So one will, they'll be in different genders because the two go together. They're supposed to be. They're different, but they're different in a complementary kind of way. Of the entire universe, that is all being created by the Word of God, the entire universe created, there is one person who is not. 
That's the creator. He is essentially other to us. He will always be in the opposite gender to us because he's other to us. Because he's the first principle in language, he will be masculine. That doesn't make him male. He'll be father. That doesn't mean he's, he's a male father. It means he's the parent that is the masculine parent. And he's masculine, not saying that there are no female or motherly traits about him, not saying that at all. It's saying that he's other to us. So it uses the, the word in the gender that says other as the first principle. So God is always in the masculine. We, on the other hand, in relationship to him, are always in the feminine. And so we're the bride, he's the husband. And because this is a picture of Christ and the church, it must of necessity be heterosexual. Otherwise, there's no picture. It has to be that way. Or you lose the picture. See, Jesus doesn't marry another God. And the church doesn't marry another human institution. It's not the way that it reflects the otherness of God to us. Marriage is covenantal, it's lifelong, it's publicly celebrated, it's monogamous, it's heterosexual, it's intimate and faithful. Now, it's really interesting that we sang this song uh, earlier today. I did not know you guys were going to sing that, but um, do you want to put up Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 9 to 10? We sing the song, Your Love Has, has Ravished My Heart. Um, it's actually quoting from this passage, but guess what? It's actually Jesus who's singing it. And he's singing this bit to us. Um, the word ravished is actually quite a shocking word. Um, it's, it's a capturing word. It's actually quite a violent, it's, it's sexually violent. Um, it's like he has had no control in this. Your love has ravished my heart. You just, your love just stepped in and your love has, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. Just one look of your eyes. And you just, you devastated me. That's the kind of language that he's using, with one link of your necklace, verse 10. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. It's beautiful. Marriage needs to be intimate. It needs to be intimate because Christ and the church is intimate. So I know that you can just, you know, particularly when kids come along, you can just start almost taking each other for granted. 
you know, because, it, you know, you've got a baby and next minute you're struggling just to get some sleep, you know, and you certainly don't feel sexy anymore, you know, just like you're just sorry. If you didn't have your kids in a kid's church, well, I should have warned you beforehand. Um, but it's intimate and you have to work at intimacy it doesn't just happen well let's just talk about this one just for a quick little sec shall we so guys and girls we're wired differently did you know that have you, have you figured that one out just yet? <laughs> Men, we're kind of like, I'd like to think we're like a Chevy Corvette, uh, but we're probably like a Model T Ford. <laughs> we got an on-off switch. Uh, we can see how fast we're going, and that's about it. Women, on the other hand, are more like a Boeing jumbo jet or something. They got switches all over the place. It's true, isn't it? Men, we're typically dumb because we think she's just got one switch too. Okay, let's go for it. And it's just like, it doesn't work that way. I think Jesus has done that deliberately. Do you know why I think he's done it deliberately? Because he has to woo us every single day. He's ready for intimacy at the drop of a hat. But we are not. And he works with us and he loves us and he talks to us and he does beautiful things for us and he speaks to us and sometimes he takes things off of our hands and other times he speaks words of comfort to us and other times he just says it hard to us and you know it's not always comfortable but it's always intimate and it's always intimate. And that's all I'm going to go into on that one. Because if that's what the picture looks like, then that's what marriage ought to be like. It ought to be something that's faithful. It ought to be something that's intimate. It ought to be something that when I go to work and I see the work colleague that I'm really attracted to, then my marriage needs to say something in that world. So this is going to strike right at the heart of the seventh commandment. You shall not murder. It's, you shall not murder. You sh <laughs> That's because I quoted Exodus 20.13 instead of Exodus 20.14, which said simply... You shall not commit adultery. Have you ever wondered why God is interested in adultery? Why it's such a big deal for him? 
It's a big deal for him because sexual relationship represents his relationship with us like nothing else. There is nothing more intimate than the sexual union. There is nothing more beautiful and there is nothing more tragic if it's done wrong. There is nothing like the sexual relationship. And it's because God has made it that way because he's made it a reflection of his love for us. Why does he care about adultery? You have to understand that the the commandments, under the commandments are all the fine print. You know, just Jesus said, well, just because you haven't actually slept with another man's wife, that doesn't mean you haven't broken that commandment. Okay, if you look lustfully, then you've already done that, you know, because you've already fallen. And he's not saying, oh, well, you already lusted in your heart, you may as well go for it then because you've already done it. You know, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that if you want to understand the whole area of sexuality and what God thinks about it, then he's going to show you the worst expression of it that he can think of. And the worst expression is going to be someone who is supposed to be in a relationship that pictures God's relationship with us in all of its majesty and purity and then goes and destroys it by sleeping with somebody else. That's what the whole sexual arena is going to look like. It means simply this, that, that if the whole law can be summed up in this command, love your neighbour as yourself, which is another thing that Jesus said, then that means rather than not committing adultery, there was something I was supposed to do. And it wasn't just that I was supposed to be faithful and remain close and intimate with my wife. It meant that I was supposed to be loving to a work colleague. It was supposed to be that I esteem someone who I just happen to be sitting on the same pew with. It just, you know, it just means this. Stop and think about this for a moment. I wish I could take every man in this room and take you a video snapshot, transport you into my office back in Sydney when I would have grown men who are blokes. Okay, I don't know what your word for a bloke is, but a bloke is someone who's carrying a gun in your context uh, and, you know, just uh, like a bloke, okay? (laughs) I wish I could take you into that room so you can see that bloke in front of me bawling his eyes out because he slept with that work colleague and how it has destroyed his relationship with his wife It's destroyed his relationship with his children. It's destroyed his relationship with her parents. It's destroyed the relationship of that woman with her husband. It's destroyed the relationship of that woman with her children. It's destroyed his relationship with all of his work colleagues because now they're trying to figure out how to relate to this guy. It's destroyed his relationship with his broader friendship circle because now he's going to go along to parties and, and, and he's got this new woman with him and just like he's ruined everything, everything. Sin is madness. It's insanity. And so what was the solution to it? The solution was to do the opposite. And it wasn't to be this big command of, no, no, I won't do that. 
The opposite will be that I esteem the sexual sexuality of the person that I'm with. If I am with someone else's wife, I esteem her relationship with her husband. And if I'm feeling attracted to her, which I'm not, by the way, I'm just letting you know, because <laughs> y'all are American here. <laughs> I heard Pastor Maddie the other day, I don't want to be taken down the bush, <laughs> uh, taken down the woods, <laughs> just, I'll come back buried and it won't be a God thing. Okay, just like, what I'm supposed to do is esteem the relationship. If I feel like, and this is what people do, good meaning Christian people, they're suddenly feeling attracted to somebody at work and they're just thinking, oh, that's really bad. Oh, I'm such a bad person. You know, I'm, I love her too much and it's just, you know, I'll keep away and I'm never going to, I'm just going to avoid her and I'm going to be really awkward around her and just, you know, just like, you know what? I don't love her enough. It's not that I'm loving her too much. I don't love her enough. If I really loved her, then I would, I would love this. And, and I would build this up if I really loved her. So the thing is, I need to lean further into what Jesus says is to love one another as he loved, him, as he loved us. I had, a, I had a woman come up to me in church uh, many years ago, so it was like 30 years ago. Will you talk to that worship leader because my husband can't worship because she just looks too sexy. And I'm just like, now I'll talk like y'all. Honey, you talk to the wrong man. That's my sister you're talking about. That's my sister. If your husband can't worship because he's looking at my sister. He's looking at my sister. He needs to grow up. Don't tell me that she needs to dress differently. She would look sexy if she was dressed in a, I was going to say a Hessian bag, but you don't have Hessian, burlap bag. She could be dressed in, in a sack and she would look, whoa. Just, I'm sorry, some people are just very, very attractive. Guess what, girls? Most of you are. Most of you. It's very common. <laughs> like, you can't... Lord, help me. I was preaching in Papua New Guinea once. Young married man. There's a, there's a bunch of women sitting down the front there on mats. And, you know, and the men are sitting on chairs behind them, just like, and next minute, she just decides she's time to feed the baby. Now, this girl was probably about 18 years of age and particularly attractive. And so she just undid her blouse and did what you do and fed her baby and then her baby put her down and just like, and proceeded to stay there without buttoning up. Completely on show, there. 
and I'm quickly praying, Lord, what do I do? (laughs) And do you know what Jesus said to me? He said, grow up. (laughs) Guess what I discovered? I could. I could. I've got four sisters. I've seen them in all manner of undress. And I do not want to have sex with them. Men, if you're looking at girls on your screen, that is somebody's daughter. And I don't know what has led her to that place where she is doing that on that screen. But I know this, that at the very least, she has a father in heaven. And if you're watching that on your screen, you are outraging her father. He is not at all comforting you. How dare you look at that beautiful girl and make her nothing but breasts and other parts. Are you kidding me? How far we fall short of the beautiful image of Christ and the church. Make up your mind right now, those of you who are married, make up your mind right now. If you have not been the best husband, if you have not been the best wife, then you're going to change it from now on. You're going to start looking like Jesus and the church. You're going to start looking like the image. Those of you who want to be married then make up your mind right now that right from the start, this is what it's going to look like. I'm going, I'm going to pursue this like Jesus and his bride. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to sleep around. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let my passions rule me. I'm not going to do what I think feels okay just because... Other animals in the kingdom, in the animal kingdom, do that. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be like one who is made in the image of God. I'm going to love my wife because she has a father in heaven. And he will not be happy if I treat her wrong. I think we need a good holy dose of fear of dad. And stop thinking of dad just in terms of yourself. Start thinking of dad in terms of the person beside you. Is that good? Amen. God bless you. I'll finish there before I get into trouble. I'll see you on Wednesday or next Sunday. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you were impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the Altar as we work to establish the Kingdom of Heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.